Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. With snakes, your chance of dying, your dog's chance of dying from a venomous snake bite here in the United States are multiple orders of magnitude lower than some interaction with a horse or driving your vehicle to the office in the morning. I mean, there's so many activities that we do so much more that are so much more dangerous, but we just don't think about it. Why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of GDIY. My guest this week is Chris Jenkins of the Orian Society. Uh, Chris, how you doing today? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm living the dream as always. I think uh, some people checking out this episode or hitting play might be a little surprised when they kind of tune in, usually on a week-to-week -week basis, to learn how to train their dogs or live with their dogs. And uh, this episode is going to focus a lot into snakes and just herpetology and reptiles and, and what that means for us gun dog folks out there that are out there chasing birds and chasing dogs out there. But there's obviously a lot of overlap and a lot of interest, I would think, within the community. Uh, along with a lot of perhaps misunderstandings or myths, would you say that that's kind of fair to assume? Yeah, no, I would I would say that is uh, exactly right. And we can get into a number of those myths and, and happy to answer questions about them. But, you know, I think I think an episode like this actually fits in perfect with with your podcast, because, uh, you know, there are components of dog training that, that you know, relate to snakes or, or other aspects, treatment of snake bites. So, um, yeah, I think this is this is a good one for for all of us who are gun dog owners to to learn a little bit more about snakes. Absolutely. Well, let's let's go ahead and start off and learn a little bit more about yourself as as the guest coming on here for the listeners that aren't familiar with who you are or who you work with. Why don't you kind of give everybody the rundown of what it is that you do on a day to day basis? Yeah, great. Well, I am the uh, chief executive officer of a wildlife research and conservation 
organization uh, called the Orianne Society. And we work, uh, you know, we work on a whole variety of species, but we focus on reptiles and amphibians, uh, turtles, snakes, salamanders, frogs, all of those types of animals. Um, and but myself personally, uh, you know, I, I I went through the academic system, you know, went did a bachelor's and master's uh, PhD, and and uh, I'm a I'm really kind of a rattlesnake uh, ecologist and conservation biologist. So my personal focus um, is with venomous snakes, and in particular rattlesnakes. But then, uh, you know, our organization works uh, much more broadly with all kinds of reptiles. And the last component I just mentioned is that, you know, I'm a lifelong um, hunter and angler. Um, you know, I serve on the North American board for backcountry hunters and anglers. And, uh, you know, I've had bird dogs for, for quite a long time. Mm. What kind of bird dogs have you kind of run over the years? Uh, I, well, I just made a transition and I have one of them, uh, sitting here at my feet, my newest one, but, um, historically, you know, I grew up with just kind of random dogs. We had labs and, and we would take them out to, you know, say planted pheasant shoots or out on rough grouse or whatever it might be. Um, but they weren't necessarily trained gun dogs. Uh, and then I lived in the Rocky mountains for, for quite a long time and I got into, um, German wire hairs and have had a series of those. And, and I still have one, but she's pretty much retired. She's getting quite old. Um, and then I just, uh, invested just a month ago, month and a half ago in a field bred English cocker. Ah, brand new starting the adventure all over again. What, what made you want to go from not even just wire hairs to cockers, but just pointing dogs to flushing dogs in general? You know, it was really a, a change in scenery. So living in in the Rocky Mountains, I loved uh, a really big running, you know, pointing dog. You know, I was out hunting everything there is to hunt there, but a lot of sharp tails, a lot of sage grouse. I was still hunting rough grouse and some of those species, but um, but you know, I liked those those big um, big running pointing dogs and the sagebrush step and the prairies. And so now living uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, I look down. In the southern Appalachians, not too far from Great Smoky Mountains, and uh, you know I do hunt grouse uh, around here, and I hunt a lot of woodcock, winter woodcock, and and then I'm always traveling to hunt. You know I probably do four or five travel hunts, and they could be anything from elk to, you know, this year it's uh, pheasant and prairie chickens, and you know so just a real diversity uh, of travel. So the cockers for me. Uh, you know, just I think they're gonna, there's going to be a lot more value um, locally where I do a lot of my hunting. You know, do a lot of big dove shoots in the south, for example, as well. And uh, and, and the other thing I'd say is, as I've gotten older, you know, just having a smaller dog, one that's maybe a little bit better of a house dog, not anything against wire hairs. I love them, but um, that that's kind of a <clears throat> you know big component of it. But I will say. I, and I'm going to give credit to you that, that, uh, you know, I was really on the fence about what type of dog to get. And I was thinking about a variety of different breeds and it was your episode with the dirt road dog company <laughs> that, that sold me on the cockers and actually Boone, my cocker, uh, I got from Jessica and those guys down at, uh, down at dirt road. Yeah. So that that episode goes way back. We did that years ago, and uh, I've talked to the Cannons, uh, Jessica and uh, Derry, 
a couple times about possibly trying to do a new episode with them for, for a, I don't know, the past year or so, and it just hadn't really worked out yet. But that's interesting that that episode kind of, I don't know, steered you away from wire hairs, if that's fair to say, but at least, you know, start a new adventure and, and start something new within the gundog world because cockers, it's, it, they just seem to get more and more popular right now. Yeah. They're great. Great little dog. Love yeah. them. Well, Speaking of popularity, you know, perhaps snakes aren't the most popular uh, creature on the planet when it comes to the average person. You know, the people that really enjoy them or respect them or kind of revere them, uh, they really appreciate them. But the people that that on average, they seem to uh, have a negative reaction to, to snakes overall. And I don't know if you have a thought or theory as opposed to in relation to like their education level of it, do you find that typically once people kind of become more educated on the snakes or what's which one's venomous, which one's not, their kind of role in the in the wildlife circle, so to speak, outside? Do you find that once they have a better understanding that they're a little bit at least more comfortable around snakes? Yeah, so I think knowledge uh, is incredibly important. I mean, the first thing I'd say from my perspective, uh, you know, I always, I have a podcast called snake talk and, uh, you know, one of the things we always say are snakes are animals too. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I love snakes, including a rattlesnake, just as much as I might love a rough grouse or an elk or, uh, you know, any other animal, they're just kind of all part of it. And I appreciate all of them. Having said that, you know, I obviously don't want to get myself or my children or my dogs, uh, you know, bitten by a snake. In terms of this, this like really widespread fear, you know, some of it is, you know, there's been a number of studies and definitely some of it is like innate. It's it's in our genes and goes back um, historically based on, you know, probably large snakes that ate historic, you know, prehistoric primates. But there is also a huge component of it uh, that is learned. And, and and that starts from a very young age. I have a lot of different sayings, but you know, I, I for example, you know, one thing I might say is, you know, if if I'm with a kid and and I hand a kid a fork, uh, you know, what do they do? They eat with it. Uh, if, if, you know, we're out in the yard and, and I hand them a basketball, what do they do? They, they shoot it at the basketball hoop. If I hand them a snake, what do they do? They kill it. And, <laughs> and so we're, we're taught it's ingrained. There's a huge learned, uh, component. One last story, uh, you know, around that. And then, uh, so this isn't even an individual story. It's happened so many times. I give a lot of snake safety, snake bite treatment type presentations, just biology presentations. And I, I can't tell you the number of times that that a scenario like this would happen where, say I had a snake, a non-venomous snake, and I put it into a child's hand, maybe a five, six-year-old child. And the child is kind of like, fascinated and really excited and then the parents see mm. this and come up and are like oh my god put that thing down you know and and so that just illustrates that that is being hammered into us that mentality uh you know since since we're kids and uh you know again i don't i don't want anybody or any dog to to get bit by a venomous snake that can make you sick or or potentially kill you but again snakes are animals too and if we can provide education and knowledge about snakes even things just as simple as their biology um you know it really 
uh, you know, it, it, it helps a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people can get over some of those fears and realize that some of those fears are actually kind of a, a fascination. Right. And I mean, I, I guess that that's fair to say, especially you, it doesn't even sometimes take the parents to react that way in terms of when you're talking about children, you know, children, I always say that more is caught than taught. And so if they see, just watch the parents' reaction to a snake or on a television or something like that, it doesn't even, you know, by definition, have to take the parent invoking their beliefs on it. It's just, you know, the kid watching a a parent overreact to a snake in the area, it could be just a simple gray rat snake and they treat it like it's a rattlesnake or something. And then you've just imposed that, that fear kind of woken it up, as you say, uh, as you pointed out, you know, in our genes throughout history, you kind of woke up that, that fear within that child. And so it's really interesting when you kind of think of it in terms of other stuff within the natural world, is there anything other than maybe spiders that sticks out to you to people have this just kind of groomed fear around them? Yeah, I would probably say, you know, maybe snakes, spiders, and possibly sharks might be kind of the the top three of what I would call, um, you know, they're, they're, they're warranted fears, but they're just, they're greatly exaggerated. And, uh, you know, just to give an example with snakes, you know, your chance of dying, your dog's chance of dying from a venomous snake bite here in the United States are multiple orders of magnitude lower than, you know, some interaction with a horse or, you know, uh, driving your vehicle to the office in the morning. I mean, there's so many activities that we do so much more that are so much more dangerous, but we just don't think about it. It's something about these sensational groups of animals. Uh, like we're saying, snakes, spiders, sharks, that, that you know, they, they really well something up inside of people that, um, you know, that, that really impacts them and they really exaggerate, um, you know, the, you know, the real potential for death or, or serious harm here. So again, I'm not trying, I mean, snakes can make people sick and can make dogs sick. But people need to realize driving to their favorite hunting cover <laughs> is actually the most dangerous thing they're going to do in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting when, you know, us as gun dog owners and bird dog owners, we're in, we're going out, we're going into areas that are inherently going to have a number of dangers or potential things that can take us out, to your point, on the way there. You know, that that's car accidents. Many more people die from car accidents than snakes or these animals, but yet nobody reacts to a car sitting in the driveway like they will just a, a rat snake going across the yard or something. And it's really interesting. You know, I was just – Quail Forever came out with an article back in January, and I just reread it as I was prepping for this, to where they talk to the overlap in habitat when it comes to birds and reptiles in general. That's, that's you know, turtles, lizards, snakes, stuff like that. So when you're talking about – proper habitat where we're actually going to try and find these birds and hunt these birds, you're inherently going to have a risk of running into snakes. And I would say that we probably run into a lot more snakes than we're even aware of, but we don't notice them because most of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, they're just going to sit there, be silent, be still, and let you walk right on past because they don't want to be 
noticed any more than we want to notice them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I would completely agree with that. And and back to your earlier comment about knowledge, uh, you know, most snakes you encounter are going to be non-venomous. And so having a little understanding of the snake species that live, um, you know, live in an area is really helpful. Um, and the other thing, you know, you kind of mentioned that overlap article from, I think it was Quail Forever, you said, mm-hmm. and uh yeah, there's there, there's overlaps in space and time, and we could get into them. But like just here, say in the U.S., you know there are many there are many places where we hunt upland birds where there's a very strong overlap in space and time with the venomous snakes. There are places we hunt where there's no overlap in space. There are places we hunt where the venomous snakes occur, but the seasons don't line up. Um, so in time, we're not overlapping with them and, and having an understanding of what snakes are there, what those snakes look like when they are likely to be out where you might have a higher chance of finding them, uh, you know, are all really, uh, important components. And then I didn't get to the last, the main point of your question and, and it slipped my mind. What was the main point at the end there? Uh, just how, you know, people go out and we're trying to find these locations to hunt these birds, which with the overlap of the habitat within mm-hmm. the snakes, depending on the region that we're in, as you pointed out, some regions are a little different. Yeah. I mean, you were literally putting yourself in a situation or at least in an area that statistically raises the odds of running into a snake. And so I think it's healthy for people to kind of come to grips with that and understand that you're going into their environment uh, just by trying to go hunt birds with your dogs. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're going, you're going into, into their, um, you know, their habitat to their home, you know, and, and as you, one point you mentioned in that question, you talked about walking by a lot of snakes and that's true. I mean, I can tell you, uh, we were here in the Southern Appalachians and we had a radio transmitter on a snake, which allows us to, you know, to study the snakes, to follow it and, you know, find its locations at different times. And we had a timber rattlesnake with a transmitter and we had narrowed it down to approximately where it was. And, I was standing on one side and I had my technician was probably about 10, 15 feet away from me. And and we knew the snake was kind of right in front of us and we just couldn't find it. And then all of a sudden it just materialized that this snake was just out on the open and the forest floor spread completely out. It was right there. And we'd been looking for it in that area for five, 10 minutes. The point being that these animals are incredibly cryptic and you will walk by them. But, you know, getting to the dogs, uh, your dog really has a greater chance of, of encountering that snake because it's not just, you know, our eyesight as we're walking through the habitat and or, or us being unlucky and stepping on it. The dog's actually, uh, you know, obviously searching for things and, and reptiles obviously give off a lot of scent. Uh, and so your dog actually has a greater chance of finding that snake than uh, than you might with a random foot placement. Yeah. And I want to jump into that with the scent, uh, the scenting of each snake, because that's what is really interesting to me is, does it vary based on the type of snake? It, you know, does, does it maybe a venomous snake or a non-venomous snake maybe smell different or more so to a dog, you know, in its natural musk or odor that it's emitting? Do you know, because I've heard from hunters that, you know, a king snake might smell more pungent to a 
to a dog than a rattlesnake. And and again, there's all kinds of different beliefs or myths out there. So, you know, is, do you have any kind of vote one way or the other on that particular one? Most definitely. And, and uh, you know, obviously you probably have a, a better understanding than me of of how strong a, a dog's no, nose is. And, um, and, and I'll give you an example from our research um, in that we have used dogs um, to locate snakes for, for research. So, um, so we would, we're looking for Eastern indigo snakes, for example, mm-hmm. in the Southeast. And we would have, uh, we would train a dog and, and train that dog to find this really rare snake. It could not only find the snake, but it could also find the shed skin of a snake that was 10 feet underground in a burrow. It could also, we could train it to the scent of different snakes, getting to your question. So we could train it to the scent of different snakes and have that dog avoid the scent of the venomous snakes in the area, but be attracted to the scent of this indigo snake, which is a non-venomous snake and the, the species we were looking for. That's fascinating. And I I assumed it would be something like that. You know, we have certain people in the world training dogs to indicate diabetes or cancer within humans. So I figured that you could probably do that within snakes or the reptile world as well. And obviously, you know, most of us folks, we don't buy bird dogs to train them to go find snakes. So like, we're not going to go to that level of training. The easiest type of training we can do is just avoid all snakes, kind of, you know, blanket statement right there. But I think it's important for people to note that not all snakes are created equal and each one brings a certain amount of value within the natural world. So especially here in the U.S. and North America, I know there's certain areas that like maybe the pet uh, industry has kind of ruined or, or introduced different types of snakes to the area, such as like maybe Florida is the first one that comes to mind. But predominantly, we still primarily have only four venomous species in the U.S., correct? Uh, no. No, okay. no, no. We, <laughs> we have many more than that. Um, I mean, we have six in the state of Georgia where I live alone. Really? Um so in Georgia here, we would have the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, uh, the timber rattlesnake or canebrake rattlesnake, the pygmy rattlesnake, the cottonmouth, the copperhead, and the coral snake. When you say four, I bet you're thinking of uh, rattlesnakes as one. Yeah. Yeah. And then say coral, uh, water moccasin, coral, yeah. and yeah. copperhead. And, yeah. And then you go down to states like Arizona and New Mexico and your diversity of, of venomous snakes are much higher, you know, well over, you know, 10 species. So, uh, yeah, so we have a good diversity uh, of snakes in North America, kind of the diversity hotspots are, uh, as you would imagine, are in the Southeast, uh, in, in the Southwest from a venomous snake perspective, just talking diversity right now, not talking abundance, but the Southwest is definitely going to be your, your most abundant area for venomous snakes. You're going to have the most species. Um, yeah. So abundance was the wrong word there. Abundance of species. So real diverse, but the point I wanted to make is that you can go to places where, 
you know, for example, where I lived in Idaho and, uh, you know, where I was wearing these wire hairs um, in these big deserts on sage grouse and other things. And uh, while there's only one species of venomous snake, it can actually be quite abundant. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, your highest diversity uh, is certainly in the southern tiers of, of the country. However, uh, you know you can get quite abundant venomous snake populations uh, further north, and venomous snakes do occur in most states uh, in the U.S. Not all, but but you know most states have them. Yeah. What What are some of the states that don't have venomous snakes that, you know, maybe they don't even have to worry about it or be concerned over mm -hmm. it? Well, I think about some some bird hunting states. So Alaska, uh, you know, there's it's even questioned whether there is a snake species that makes it in there. There's a garter snake that kind of flirts with the, the border there. Um, Hawaii, uh, which which has a lot of upland bird hunting, no venomous snakes there. Uh, places like uh, Maine, uh, pretty good, you know, woodcock and and uh, grouse destination. Uh, historically, had timber rattlesnakes, uh, but they're gone. Um, most of your north woods uh, states were places your your real destination places for say grouse and woodcock. So you know, we're talking Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, you're going to have. Uh, you know, those some of those states have uh, in particular timber rattlesnakes, but they'd be very limited. Um, they would only be uh, in a limited part of the state, and they typically wouldn't be in the same habitats that you would be hunting the, the grouse and woodcock. Okay, interesting. As far as abundance, like you said, that you know, there's there's a variety depending on which region you go into, but abundance where break it down by locations like you just were of something that we might might attract upland hunters overall. What are some of the biggest areas or biggest concerns for us going out with our dogs, whether that's dogs getting tagged or us possibly is, is it maybe out in the Midwest with all the prairie rattlers? Yeah. So I would say I just kind of walk around to different regions of the country. I'll start in the Southeast because, uh, you know, I, I live here, um, you know, pretty much anytime you're bird hunting in the Southeast, you have, uh, you know, decent chances of, of bumping into venomous snakes. So, you know, if you think of the bobwhite quail populations, um, you know, or, or woodcock hunting, I mean, there are just Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, things like cottonmouths that, yes, they go underground for parts of the winter when we're often hunting the quail, um, but they will certainly um, be up on, uh, you know, a nice, relatively warm winter day. So th that's ever present with bobwhite quail hunting in the Southeast, a similar, uh, you know, it's not a heavily hunted region, but where I live in the Southern Appalachian, if, if you're hunting grouse here, uh, you know, and, and you're, you know, those, those timber rattlesnakes are going to be out, you know, well into October. Um, so a lot of the times we'd be out hunting them, but, and, and there's a fair number of rattlesnakes. There's probably more rattlesnakes than grouse, to be honest with you. Probably, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, um, you know, but I, I thought, I think you brought up a good one, um, being the, the prairies and the, pra you know, we say the prairies, you know, tall grass, a uh, short grass. So a lot of the ground you think of for pheasant prairie chickens uh you know some of the species like sharp tails uh yeah we have prairie rattlesnakes and those can be relatively abundant 
depending where you are, they're probably going in in that same time frame, September up north, but down in you know October uh, in, in other parts. And so there is a pretty good overlap in terms of when a lot of people would go hunt, especially those early um, prairie species. You know, a lot of your, you know, say if you have a lot of people going, say, hunting pheasant in like, you know, November time frame, you know, you're for the most part, you're going to, um, except for a really warm day, you're not going to overlap too much. And then the quail in the Southwest would be very similar to the Southeast. You have uh, an incredible diversity of snakes, uh, an abundance of venomous snakes there. And uh, they, you know, they can be out in the middle of the winter if if the weather's right. So there's there's a lot of opportunity for for overlap between uh, you know your gun dog and venomous snakes uh, in the United States, really across the the upland uh, you know hunting habitats that we all might go to. The one I'd say where you have the real least lowest chance uh, are those true like north woods or even Rocky Mountain uh, kind of uh, forest grouse type hunts. There's very little overlap there, but otherwise prairie birds, you know, your, your different quail species in the Southeast and, and the Southwest, uh, you know, there's, there's pretty good overlap both in space and time. Yeah. Is there a magical number temperature that may bring a snake from underground or does that kind of vary based on the species regions, something like that? Is it something like if it, if the high for today hits 60 degrees, cause I hear that all the time, like, Oh, we're good until it hits 67 degrees. And I'm like, I don't know if that's like an arbitrary number or if there's an actual fact behind that. Mm-hmm. Well, so first of all, snakes, experience temperature different than humans do. And and we just always think from a human perspective or, or from how a dog experiences temperature, but you know, people always hear the term cold blooded um, or scientists like to say ectotherms. And there's a lot of animals on the planet like this, all your reptiles, amphibians, fish. And basically all that means is that a reptile's body temperature is controlled by the environment, whereas we control ours physiologically. So we eat a lot and our body, you know, our, our temperatures are always about the same, somewhere in that 98.7, right? A snake's body temperature is not like that. It goes up and down based on the environment. And so that's why you you hear stories of, you know, say people, it was pretty cool out and they saw a snake on the surface and it just, they, they, you know, didn't move at all. Um, and a lot of that probably had to do with temperature. But what, what I'm getting at there is that snakes change their body temperature, not just based on the air temperature. They change their body temperature based on all kinds of things. So, so radiation from the sun, from heat they're getting from, uh, you know, rocks and soil they might be touching. So I would not say there is a magic temperature that you would see a, a snake on the surface, but certainly as you get into like the fifties, certainly sixties, as you mentioned, um, it's, it's a possibility, but you can also like, let's just take, uh, take a rattlesnake, a timber rattlesnake in New York state. And it is, uh, you know, kind of a, it's winter, but then the, uh, there's a warm day and it gets up into the sixties. That doesn't mean that a snake's automatically going to be on the surface because it's winter time. The, the deep soil temperatures are really cool. Um, so there's a real seasonality to it as well, but there are those shoulder seasons when the snakes are coming in and out 
where they, uh, you know, where they'll kind of be in and out of dens and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So obviously we're, we're talking about, we keep using the word venomous snake. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way to where so many people refer to it as poisonous, you know, snakes are poisonous. And I know this is probably one of your most uh, often asked questions or points that you probably have to make as you educate a lot of people, but let's go ahead and break out the difference between venom and poison for the, for the average listener. Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty simple, like uh, of something that's venomous, like a venomous snake will actually deliver that chemical to you. So, you know, we have venomous spiders, for example, whereas something that's poisonous, it would be something that you kind of ingest and it would the chemicals get into you uh, that way. But so sometimes you hear it and you get that question a lot, like you said, but in general, you know, snakes are venomous they're not poisonous. You know, there's certain mushrooms, for example, that are poisonous. There are certain animals that are poisonous, say, uh, you know, certain types of toads or, or whatever it might be. But in general, snakes are venomous in that they have this chemical uh, cocktail that they deliver uh, to prey that they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this, I mean, ultimately, is there really any distinguishment or importance to the average person besides just having the correct vernacular when it comes to this description? Uh, no. Okay. It's it's yeah. I mean, it's kind of semantics. Um, you know, it. Yeah, I mean, you could say poisonous. People know what you're talking about, yeah. but yeah, it's just it's just a different word. But the correct word is venomous. I'm trying to think of an analogous, you know, couple terms, but, uh, but, you know, for people who know what they're talking about, when somebody says a poisonous snake, it, it just sounds very awkward. So, right. but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's not a, a real big distinction yeah. biologically. It's just kind of how a chemical compound is delivered. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just trying to call everything by its right name. Right. That's, that's really yeah. all we're talking about. And when we talk about venom there, you know, not all venoms are created equal. You know, some state snakes are a little bit more potent than others. Uh, and then even the types of venom, you know, you have hemotoxin versus neurotoxin. And, and I'm kind of curious to get your take on, we talk about it's it's not the most common thing for a dog or human to necessarily die from a snake bite, but is one more so deadlier than the other? I know that I know that's correct, but can you kind of break down as to which one is the more higher concern? I guess. Yeah. Well, so the first thing I'd say is that yeah, there's a huge diversity of venoms in snakes all around the world, and in a general sense. The venoms that we have in our North American snakes are not as toxic as as some of the venoms in other places. There are certainly some very toxic uh, species here. Um, There are a lot of different types of venoms. You mentioned like hemotoxins, neurotoxins, or cytotoxins, cardiotoxins. But, But people, you know, we typically think of hemotoxin that you mentioned and the neurotoxin. Um, and in a general sense, a hemotoxin is going to be, it's really focused on red blood cells and, and, and it's like breaking down tissues. I like to think of it, if you think of it from the snake's perspective, it's almost like it functions like digestive enzymes. And so if a snake injects that 
into a mouse that it's going to eat, that venom is digesting that mouse from the inside out. So it's breaking down blood cells. It's breaking down tissue. And if your dog, uh, you know, gets a bite, the same thing's going to happen to your dog. Obviously, the snake's not going to eat the dog, but it's it's almost like your dog is being digested from the inside out in a particular region of of its body. Um, neurotoxins, uh, as the name suggests, are, are more related to the neurological system. Um, and they can do things like cause paralysis, you know, they, they affect how your brain works, uh, you know, affect your brain's ability to tell your lungs to take in air, those types of things. And a lot of your most dangerous snakes around the world um, are neurotoxic or have a strong neurotoxic component. The majority of snakes that you're going to encounter um, bird hunting in the U.S. or in North America are going to be more in that hemotoxic side of the venom. Again, it's a little more complex than that. There's some other components, but we'll just stick to those two terms. Although we do have um, some snakes that have uh, neurotoxins. The first and most obvious example are the coral snakes. So the coral snakes, um, you know, so we have one in the Southwest and one in the Southeast. Those are, uh, they're, they're in the family Elapidae. So what that means is that they're most closely related to things such as cobras, mambas, sea snakes. Um, and uh, they have highly neurotoxic venom and neurotoxic venom you know, has the potential to be more deadly. But however, coral snakes, uh, you know, a coral snake bite would be very rare on a gun dog or a human. You're much more likely uh, to get a bite from some type of viper, either a rattlesnake or a cottonmouth, something of that nature. Um, and be, that's for a, a couple of reasons. First of all, coral snakes spend a ton of their time underground. They're on the surface less on average than your typical rattlesnake species. The other thing is that they're relatively small and they have a relatively small mouth um, and they have uh, relatively small fangs. So, you know, a, a dog, for example, if a coral snake was on the surface, a dog could step on it and, and you know, a rattlesnake could, could very efficiently deliver a bite, whereas a coral snake could be a little more difficult. They'd kind of be grabbing it and trying to get their fangs in. But I will say that within the vipers, you know, venoms are not always, you know, for a given species, they're not always just class, classified as just hemotoxic or just neurotoxic or just cytotoxic, whatever type of venom. They're like these cocktails and they can have different components. So for example, there are certain rattlesnakes or certain vipers um, in North America that do have a pretty strong neurotoxic component. The one people always talk about and think about is the green Mojave. So there's a Mojave rattlesnake that you find obviously in the, in the Southwest and the Mojave deserts. And uh, there's multiple subspecies and um, you know, but one of them in particular uh, just has a really strong neurotoxic component, which means that they can be more deadly to a dog or a human. They're also, the other thing to think about with venoms, um, take the timber rattlesnake, which is a really wide ranging snake, 
historically Maine to Florida to Texas to Minnesota, just a really wide ranging snake in Eastern North America. Uh, it, it does not have the same venom across its entire range. Venom can vary quite a bit. Um, and that's why if we get to talking about like the vaccine and, and treatment and things, it, you know, even within the same species, it can be quite different. But but anyway, so venom will vary within a species. And so if you take the timber rattlesnake that I just mentioned, there are certain areas where their timber rattlesnakes will have more of a neurotoxic component. So, you know, there are parts of, um, you know, parts of quail, bobwhite quail country, for example, and parts of places like Southwest Georgia, parts of Florida, maybe some Alabama, where uh, it's known that Timber rattlesnakes, you know, have much more, you know, they have more of a neurotoxic, much more toxic venom than in other places. And I'm sure if we learn more about the venom of some other wide ranging species, say prairie rattlesnakes or Western diamondbacks, that we'd find the same thing, that there are certain places in the range where the venom is highly toxic and certain places where it's it's not so much. Yeah. And so let's jump into the vaccine since you kind of touched on it and that there's, there's a lot of... I don't know, opposing viewpoints or opinions on this as as there is in everything in life, but this particularly to where I think isn't the vaccine out of the Western Diamondback, is that correct? Uh correct. It's it's primarily made using Western Diamondbacks. Yep. And and so is there any I've heard it yes and no. Is there any evidence over crossover to where the the Western Diamondback vaccine helps if you get tagged by say a timber rattler in the southeast so i would say so the first thing i would say is that uh, i'm not giving medical advice for for anybody's dog so people need to make their own decisions and, and research more but um but i'm i have read uh, a lot of the information out there i've read some of the scientific papers on this um and i've interacted with a lot of vets um, you know, and, and some of the the uh, best uh, snake bite treatment in dog vets that exist. And uh, using all of that information, I uh, I'll just tell you what I do with my dogs. So again, I'm not recommending, but based on everything I've learned, uh, and I, I do not, use the vaccine. I see little to no value. Um, I don't not make any statement on the business side of it, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's probably, <laughs> it's just a money-making, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it gives some, uh, dog owner some level of, um, comfort, but, but, you know, I also think that's, uh, a false comfort in general. Um, so back to your original question, uh, I do not vaccinate my dogs. Um, the top snake bite vets in the country do not recommend it. Uh, and they're in terms of whether it would help with a timber rattlesnake bite, I, I would say if there's any assistance that gives you really in any snake bite, uh, it would be very minimal. And that's even in the Southwest. And I think that's where the highest proportion of vaccines are used. And that's where the vaccines, you know, developed from uh, Western Diamondback. And so, you know, I don't know for sure, but if there is a place where there would be more value, 
Um, I would expect it there. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms, uh, so different components of the vaccine. One, the just the money side of it. And I know when we're thinking about our, our gun dogs, we're typically not thinking about the money side of it. But a snake bite with a human or a dog is an expensive proposition. Um, and so, uh, and and the vaccine um, recommends that if your dog's bitten, that you treat them as if they were vaccinated or not. So first of all, just from a pure dollars and cents, you are going to pay the same amount of money either way, whether your dog's vaccinated or not. Um, but I know that's not the point for most of us dog owners. The point is, well, is it going to save my dog? I'm not so concerned <laughs> with money at that point. But the truth is that uh, there's very little evidence uh, that, you know, that it does much. The one real clinical trial that's been done with it has been done on mice. And uh, and the mice, if I remember right, the, the, the mice who, who received the, you know, the vaccine and then they were envenomated, they ended up, um, you know, the mortality rate stayed the same um, as it would have without the vaccine. I think it kept them alive a little bit longer. I can't remember those exact lengths of time, but mortality rates were the same. Um, you know, and then if you look at the vaccine on it, it says something like, uh, you know, or it gives a, a series of species that you're supposed to use it for. And they are South or they're Western species, like Northern Pacific rattlesnakes, Southern Pacific rattlesnakes, certainly Western diamondbacks. Um, but uh, I believe, and I might be wrong on this, that, that the vaccine only um, did help with the diamondback and that mice that received either like say Northern Pacific or Southern Pacific venom uh, ended up dying you know, at the same rate, I've already said that they all died at the same rate, but also in the same time frame. Uh, so I, I may be a little bit off on the details of that study, but in general, there's really not much of a positive effect. And, and the first reason is that it's different than something like, take like Parvo, right? Uh, and we're creating a vaccine for Parvo. Like we're going in and it's one specific virus and so you go in and they biochemically, they create these antibodies and, you know, we, we put these in our dogs so, so they don't get parvo. Um, however, if you take rattlesnake venom, it is incredibly complex. I've already talked within a species, there, there's variation uh, across species, there's incredible variation. And then the venom within an individual you know, these are like chemical cocktails that are made up of 50 or more different, you know, compounds. And, and so it's not a single virus. And so even at that, when you make antibodies, uh, and this has all been studied and shown, like, you're not going to create antibodies that respond to every aspect of this very complex venom. And so I don't know, from, from my perspective, um, it's not worth it um, because you could, uh, you know, you, you know, you could have a dog that's allergic to it, and you, and you know, you could have your dog do something like go to anaphylaxis just from the, you know, just from from the vaccine. That I'm, I'm assuming that's a very rare instance. But my point being is, I don't see much upside, so I'm not going to even risk yeah. that. But I do encourage. I'm not recommending. I'm encourage people learn about it themselves and be advocates 
you know, for the health of, of their dogs and, and really be involved in that and talk with their vets and question them and think critically. Um, but in general, no, I do not vaccinate my dogs. I, what I do in terms of keeping my dogs safe from venomous snakes is, uh, first thing I, I think of is, uh, you know, kind of my behavior, meaning where we hunt and when I talk about space and time. Like if I know that a lot of rattlesnakes are going to be on talus slopes in a particular, uh, you know, area because they're going into hibernation, I'm not going to be hunting those areas that would have really high concentrations of snakes at that time. Sometimes you can't avoid, I mean, the snakes are just in the environment. So one is just my behavior, being conscious that there are snakes in the environment. And, uh, you know, say, say you're on a quail plantation down here in the Southeast in the middle of the winter, Eastern dimeback rattlesnakes are often in like stump holes gopher tortoise burrows, big holes in the ground. And so if my dog's poking around one of those holes, I'm going to, you know, recall. And, and so, you know, some of it's that type of behavior. Um, there are obviously some snake proof, um, gear you can get for your snake or for your dog, excuse me. Um, so you can get, uh, you know, snake proof, like chest, you can get it even now that have the, the neck component. I just like the you know, my dog's going to be wearing some type of harness or, or apparatus hunting anyway. So, uh, you know, why not have the snake proof one? But again, as most people would probably imagine, it, it's going to be a real small percentage of snake bites on dogs that actually happen on their torso. Yeah. The majority are going to be on their face. And then secondarily, um, you know, it will be on the legs. Um, so I, I don't even necessarily recommend that, but, but it can't hurt. Um, but the big thing is how you behave and then snake aversion training. Uh, I would, I would invest in snake aversion training any day over the vaccine for my dogs personally. Yeah. And, uh, every time I was coming up with a question, you just kind of naturally went into it and answered it. It's like, you've done this a time or two, Chris, uh, <laughs> Snake aversion. So this is something that you do with all your dogs. How often do you do it? Do you just do it one time and then rely on that? Or you do kind of a refresher course with your dogs like every couple years or so? Yeah. So, well, I have the luxury of, of having the snakes, you know, so I, I have venomous snakes. I mean, I'm sitting right here in my office. I have a few. So, um, yeah, I like to give them uh, you know, usually once a year, some type of training around that, but I know that's most people aren't handling venomous snakes. Um, but if you start researching it there, um, you know, there are people around who do this, for example, in the desert Southwest, there are multiple people who do snake aversion training. And, uh, you know, again, to reference, um, snake talk podcast, we did a whole episode on snake aversion training with a gentleman, uh, from Arizona. And I can give you that, that link if you want for the show notes. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but down here in the Southeast, there's, there's a course out of Atlanta. And so if you start looking for it, you, you can find it, uh, or you can find, you know, there are people who are interested in snakes in many, many places. I mean, there are, uh, you know, people who keep snakes, uh, millions of people keep snakes in the United States. A lot of people may be surprised by that, but, 
Um, but there'd be opportunities for, you know, people like myself who, who you might know who have snakes. And, you know, since I have the snakes, I can build containment and cages and, and, uh, you know, just set up situations for me and my friends to, you know, to go out and, and train our own dogs, but I provide the snake, they need to do the training essentially, but you might be able to find some of those as well. But if you start searching online, there are multiple places. Um, and I think it's becoming, uh, more popular. Um, a lot of places like, like this gentleman in Arizona that I referenced was on my podcast. He, uh, you know, for example, he has like a face mask that he's built for these snakes. So your your dogs would actually physically come up and um, interact very closely uh, with these snakes, and the snakes can't bite the dog. Um, do they still get like the impact? Like, say the snake actually like tries to bite them, and they have the let's call it a muzzle uh, on the face. Like the the dog actually feels the impact from that snake hitting it, however hard each one does. Yeah, I mean, if if that happened, if the dog got close enough and the and the snake struck, yeah, the snake would hit it. And some of these snakes, you know, say down in that part of the world, you know, Western diamondback rattlesnakes, pretty big snake, they right? Can, you know, get up close to seven feet long and you know have a lot of girth. And so, um, so yeah. But uh, well, we yeah, won't, so we I'm, don't have I'm, to spend too much time on the snake aversion, as you said. You know, we'll put the link to your episode in the show notes of this one. But I'm I'm just curious because. Not all aversion training are created equal. I mean, just like you said, the mm-hmm. guy in Arizona, he has the muzzles for his snakes. If somebody's looking into this and there's an option near them, how do they begin to realize, just hit on the high notes, uh, if it's truly going to be an effective aversion course? Because, you know, I know a lot of people, they swear by just, you know, if they see a, a king snake out in the field, you can do snake aversion training, but you already discuss the fact that each snake smells different you know there's a couple other sensory factors you know you have smell you have sight you have hearing you have all that stuff so what are the high notes or important things that us as dog owners when we're looking at each individual course we know whether it's really worth the time and effort yeah i mean i would want to look for somebody i mean again i gave that example of a friend you might have that has snakes and and if you're going to do that you know that's one thing, but I would look for an established person that's doing aversion training that is um, allowing your dog to interact with venomous snakes in a safe manner. Um, and uh, like you said, there's multiple stimuli. So, uh, you know, there's the smell of the snake, there's the sound of the rattle, there's the sight of the snake. So, I mean, those can be some of the questions that you might ask somebody how they're going to um you know, are they going to be able to see the snake? Are they only going to be trained with shed skins? Um, obviously the safety of the dog and the snake. So how is the snake presented to the dog? But generally, if you find somebody who's, who's reputable and has been doing this, um, you know, it, it should be put together fairly well, but you want, um, I feel pretty strongly that you want your, dog to interact uh, very directly with the snake to, to learn all of those stimuli. And you don't want to just be like, oh, we were in the woods and, you know, we saw a king snake, like you said, or even we were in the woods, we saw a timber rattlesnake and, you know, I, I you know, pulled them back or then, you know, that's still not training. I, I mean, when you think of snake aversion training, just think about it like anything else you might be training. So you're training your dog to water retrieve and, and you're, you're going out for a, I don't know, a 
day or two course and you're, you're working with people like this is the same thing. Um, and actually the consequences are much more significant than having a dog that won't water retrieve. So, yeah. um, so, I mean, think of it like that, take it as serious training, find uh reputable people that, that are significant, but I, but I would make sure that your dog's going to interact with the snake multiple times, um, an actual snake, not just the shed skin. Shed skins are important too, because you know if there's a shed skin around, why not have the dog go the other way in case there's a snake close? But in general, I would tell people, I'm not being very articulate or giving a lot of details there, but think of it like the other components of training that that you might do for your dog. It's it's that important, if not more. Yeah, there's a there's a process to it. There's steps. There's proofing that it, it's a lot more than just hitting them on the e collar. If you have an opportunity to do it around a snake in the field, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's a, there, there's a lot more to it, or else nobody would really have to worry about it uh, if it was that mm-hmm. easy. So, what about non venomous snakes? Can these dogs are there like infections or something like that? That you know, even if your dog gets tagged by a non venomous snake. Do we need to be concerned about that in any real, you know, probability format? Mm, I would say no more than you would be concerned with any other wound um, and, and, you know, getting that clean. Any other, not, I, let's not say wound, let's say any other bite from another type of animal, of whatever that might be, a, you know, I don't know, a raccoon or a, you know, rabbit bite your bird dog in the process of hunting, you're going to be concerned and you're going to want to clean it out and, you know, they do those types of things. And it'd be the same thing with a snake, but there's nothing in particular that you need to worry about. That's unique, uh, to snakes that, uh, you know, are non-venomous. Yeah. What about, you know, people talk all the time about, they swear like the snake was chasing them. It was after Mm -hmm. them. Is, is there one species of snake out there uh, venomous or non, that is a little bit more aggressive and will actually, you know, instead of slinking down or being still to let you pass on by, if you do kind of encounter it, know that that one's going to, you know, bow up on you, make itself known, you know, even go after you or your dog or something like that. Yeah. So there are some venomous species in the world that are more likely to do what you're talking about, actually chase you, do those types of things, but they don't live in North America. You know, some of those elapid species, um, you know, people have probably seen like YouTube videos of, of say like a Jeep driving by and a black Mamba seemingly like chasing the Jeep or attacking the side of the Jeep. So there are some species that are maybe more apt to do that. I still think a black Mamba is much more likely to, to try to escape. Um, but here in, in North America, we have almost all vipers. Um, and so vipers by nature if you just think about how they feed, they're sit and wait predators. So they sit in one place and they wait for their food. They're not these active animals. They don't have, you know, a lot of these very active snakes, uh, you know, they're out moving. They have really big eyes. They're active foragers. Vipers just are not that they're defensive animals. They have, you know, the, the heat sensing pits and other things that are all structured for a, a biology that's like, sit in one place and wait for something. And so they defend themselves in the same way. You know, 
people, well, let me just say, I like to, the, the saying too, that like when people see a snake, I'm generalizing, but they lose their minds and they can't, and they can't <laughs> yeah. think straight. And that's a lot of people. Like sometimes they quite literally, uh, you know, kind of lose their minds and they're not thinking straight. If, if you see a rattlesnake um, in the wild, all you really have to do is go around that animal. You'll probably never see it again. Um, most vipers, their strike distance is about a third to a half the length of the body, which means in most cases, you're talking like a foot, maybe on a big snake, a couple feet. So um, again, they're sit and wait predators. They're, they're not going to chase you. Some people think that like cottonmouths chase you more. I think that's more just because they're in the water. And so when people are in the water and they see a cottonmouth swimming, they think it's chasing them. Uh, but in general, there are no venomous snakes in North America that are going to chase you. Um, there are some non-venomous that we have that might be a little more likely to do that type of behavior. I've had it happen a couple times, for example, with um, black racers. I was about to say uh, racers, probably. <laughs> yeah, but even at that, I mean, for the most part, a racer's going to try to get away. But you might have that rare individual that that, you know, tries to tries to come after you. Mm -hmm. So let's let's explore the types of bites. I guess there's a, there's a few ways to come about this. You know, number one is I, I want you to speak on the statistics, if there are any on wet versus dry bites and then also the location, because like you were talking about, very rarely does your dog get struck in the torso more so than it is the face. And that's because the dog's going to be smelling it, nosing it, trying to grab it, something like that. Uh, what what kind of complications and problems are each location kind of met with if it's bit by a venomous snake? Mm -hmm. Well, so the first thing I'd say, you mentioned dry bites. So... Um, with humans, um, and I don't know of any data that shows there's a different um, percentage for dogs, and I don't think it would be different because, um, first of all, let me say what a dry bite is. So um, rattlesnakes, vipers in general, can control to a degree how much venom they inject into something they bite. And Vipers have their venom for feeding. It's not a defensive venom. There are some animals on the planet that have a defensive venom, but vipers do not. It's for feeding. And so if they're defending themselves against a dog or you, uh, it's not necessarily to their advantage to inject you with venom because they're not going to eat you. And so um, – we find that in North America, it's somewhere between 25 and 50% of venomous snake bites are dry bites, meaning they don't inject any venom. I wouldn't trust any numbers on dogs just because we don't know every time that a dog gets a snake bite. You know, so if a dog gets a snake bite out in the yard, you know, it probably yelps. If you're not right there to hear that, you probably don't even know about it. And, and if it was a dry bite, so anyways, you know, I, I would think that dog statistics um, would be somewhat skewed. Um, in terms of, you know, you're talking about like locations and just dog bites in, in general. Uh, first of all, relative to humans, I, I've heard this a lot, and I don't know if you've, you've heard this, Nick, but that, that dogs do better 
with a venomous snake bite than a human does. They just deal with it better. I've heard that. But that's kind of a wives' tale. And if you look at the clinical data, uh, you know, things such as mortality rates and just uh, the, the severity of symptoms, those types of things are actually very similar between dogs and humans. Um, you know, talking to some vets, I mean, what we really think it is, is dogs are just incredibly hardy. You know I mean? Dogs can go, and I'm sure you've known this, you could have a very sick dog and, and you know, it doesn't even you let on for some, a while. Yeah. 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 You know, let, you know, notice some subtle things, but you know, they're just really tough and, and stoic might be a good word. And uh, you know, so I just think that they don't react like humans. Like many, you know, we've probably both had sick dogs that if a human was as sick as that dog, they'd be screaming and crying. And so dogs are, again, I just think a little more stoic. They don't uh, display those kind of like pain behaviors uh, quite as much as like a human would. Um, and so I, I think that's probably where that myth comes from, that dogs do better with it. Because if you go into, again, the results of the bite, the, the, there's really not much difference uh, between, between dogs and humans. Um, in terms of where they get the bite, uh, the face is, uh, you know, would be the highest uh, percentage. And, and, you know, there's a lot of important things on your head. So having venom <laughs> yeah. here, things like your brain and other things is is not always the best. I will say, though, you know, the head is actually a pretty, it's not the meatiest part of a body, meaning there's a lot of bone under skin with the skull. So in some ways that could be good. Um, with dogs, one thing uh, that is you know, kind of a, well, I don't want to call it a positive, but it's almost neutral relative to humans, but horses, um, when horses end up getting a bite, they almost inevitably, uh, their airway closes and it has something to do, uh, with just, the, you know, their structure, their morphology, but it's almost every time if they get a venom injected, uh, you know, they're essentially having to like, uh, ventilate a, a horse, but dogs don't have that problem unless they're bit on the inside of the mouth. Um, and if they get a bite and uh, it gets into the, what do you call it? The pharyngeal tissues. But, but basically if a dog gets a bite on the inside of its mouth, um, that can uh, become a danger. Um, so in general, uh, I'm kind of just talking about a bunch of topics here. But yeah, dogs would get most bites in the head. Uh, you know, I see it as somewhat of an armored area of the dog, which is good. But, um, and I don't know if it's necessarily that much better or worse than other parts of the body in terms of transmitting the the venom through the body. But the result, what you want to do is is basically the same wherever they get that bite. Yeah. So, Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of how it's it's been brought up to me is most dogs, as you said, you, you hear dogs handle bites better than humans. But then you also kind of conversely hear from other people that, you know, the dogs are going to respond how they're going to respond. As long as they don't get hit and obstruct their airway, they're usually fine. But then, you know, you the few people that I know that have actually gotten hit by snakes, and I know one in particular, he's got a draught that's been hit by a water moccasin twice for sure, maybe three times now. So he's not learning his lesson uh, with, with that snake. But it's, you know, the treatment 
you know, you're talking anti-venom and it's not the cheapest thing out there by any means. And so I was just kind of curious if if one location on the body meant, OK, this is going to be a, a, a little bit more expensive trip to the emergency vet than if it got tagged, like, say, in the shoulder or something. Uh I don't think that's necessarily the case again, unless, you know, maybe somewhere on the leg where it really doesn't get into tissue well or somewhere on the head, say like the crown of the head and doesn't get into tissue well. But in general, um, yeah, I don't think a bite on a different, different parts of the body is necessarily going to be more or less because the body is going to work to send that venom, you know, through the body. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you could, for example, you could in theory have a bite, on like the back ham of a dog and like it, but somehow the, the venom actually gets injected directly into like an artery or a vein or, you know, so there's just a lot of variation, but, um, but yeah, in terms of the treatment, uh, you, you know, first of all, you heard me say it earlier, but you need to be an advocate for the healthcare, obviously of yourself, but, but you need to be an advocate for the healthcare of your dog and, and, you know, I mean, I trust vets, but I, I don't just do anything and everything a veterinarian says. And, um, you know, I have conversations with them and try to determine. And so I would be doing the same thing with your vet there. Like, you know, you don't want to start injecting or using um, anti-venom, for example, if, if your dog had a dry bite, you're going to spend a lot of money for nothing. So you, you just want to really have a good interaction with the vet. Um, you want to make sure that... Um, you know, just be real honest with your vet and, and try to get a handle on their understanding of snake bites. A lot of vets aren't going to interact or have experience with snake bites on dogs that much. Um, you know, so, you know, you just want to really be an advocate and make sure you're getting the best health care for your, for your dog. And, you know, I'd rather have like a small town vet, say I'm on the road hunting somewhere in the Midwest and dog gets a bite and go to small vet. I'd rather have just a real straightforward discussion with them. And, and, you know, if they're like, well, I really don't have that much experience. I'd rather just go on down the road to the big city. Um, and so anyways, just be an advocate for your dog's healthcare and, you know, just have very honest, frank conversations and, uh, you know, make sure the appropriate treatment is given at the appropriate time. Yeah, that, that that's a good point. I mean, vets are humans just like us, just like we have to kind of vet our own doctors out and, and treatment plans for ourselves. We also need to do that with the dogs and, and be the advocate that uh, they can't speak for themselves. You know, we at least have that, that ability to do so when we're dealing with doctors. But so as, as we start kind of trying to steer this in and, and, and wrap it up, it's uh, as we talked about throughout this entire episode, but really at the start of it, is snakes, there's just a ton of different myths, maybe misunderstandings uh, that, that just get repeated, generational speaking. So like I, I want to talk to maybe some of the myths that you've heard about and you know maybe if there's any that i i have in my head that you haven't addressed uh i can bring them up and we can we can start wrapping this up but in your eyes what are some of the more common beliefs or myths uh that people have around snakes that you just wish that we could just kind of erase from from history well the first one that i will mention and this has to do with dog uh snake bites and dogs and the treatment of those is that 
you often hear the word Benadryl used or people thinking about, you know, other anti-inflammatories and, and things of that nature. And that those are not, those do not help a dog with snake bite. I mean, you would, when you would use Benadryl in a snake bite situation with a dog um, is if the dog is having an allergic reaction to the, either the venom to some of the treatment, that's when you start using those. But like just your dog gets a snake bite in the field and you start pumping them with Benadryl. If anything, you're actually probably, you know, you might be doing things like lowering blood pressure or other things that could actually hurt the dog more. So uh, that's a common myth that I hear uh, with dog people is kind of treatment in the field and giving him some of these anti-inflammatories and, um, you know, medicines for allergies or allergic reactions. And um, so that's one big myth in the the treatment of snake bite in dogs. Um, so I don't know. Would, do you have any for me? So I have no idea if there's any truth to this. That's why I'm asking you. I, I was brought up and I can't recall. I actually think it was my old man growing up, and and I don't know if it was stemmed from he just wanted us to shut up and go swimming in the lake or whatever. But he convinced us that snakes can't bite underwater. You know, mm. the way he explained it was like think of a, a one of the balloon animal balloons or something. You fill it up with water, it, you know, it can't do anything. So, what what's your thought process on that? Uh, so snakes can definitely bite underwater. Um, but like your average rattlesnake, take like a timber rattlesnake from where, you know, you and I live and, you know, what they're not going to be able to do is like kind of be coiled up and have all that kinetic energy and be able to strike far. So if a snake's kind of like out swimming through the water, it's probably going to have to, you know, almost touch you to like grab you and bite you, but they certainly can bite you underwater. Um, you know, and as evidence of that, take kind of the most famous of the uh, venomous snakes that are in the water, you know, the cotton mouth or, or people call them water moccasins. And, uh, you know, they actually do a lot of their hunting under the water. So they're underwater grabbing fish, grabbing frogs. Right. Um, so a snake can certainly bite underwater. Um, but I would think in many cases, the range of how far they might be able to lunge and bite uh, would be um, impacted, you know, re reduced. Yeah. Yeah. What about juvenile snakes being more venomous or higher potency than the adult snakes? Yeah. So I, I talked earlier about the concept of how a lot of these vipers can meter or control how much or if they deliver any venom. Um, and so historically, a lot of people thought that young snakes, like baby, like neonate rattlesnakes, um, didn't have that ability. And so if you got a bite from a neonate or a young snake, it was more likely to give you all of its venom load. Um, since those times, there's been, you know, and I've actually presented that in my career early on in my career, but since that time, um, there's been a lot of research that shows that these young snakes actually can control uh, their how much venom they inject. And that it's it looks like the prevalence of dry bites, meaning bites where they don't inject venom, is not that much different than adults. So um, it looks like that's not the case. I would actually say 
you know, based on that, that juveniles are less dangerous because they're just physically smaller, so they can have less venom. A bigger snake has the potential to have more more venom. Mm. Now, this one, I, I don't know if it technically qualifies as a myth, but it's something that as I go around traveling the country and, and hunting with these bird dogs, you know, people generalize, oh, you're good if you just do X, right? And so when you go out into the Midwest and up north with the prairie rattlers, they talk about, well, just stay away from the prairie dog towns, you know, the, the communities where prairie dogs are, and you really won't have to worry about snakes. Is there any kind of truth in regards to that? I know we talked about the overlap between other animals and snakes, but is there any truth to this one particular case? Um, I would say it, it's partially true in that, one, it's not true in that not all prairie rattlesnakes are concentrated around prairie dog colonies. Um, you know, snakes are all out through these, these grasslands and different snakes are doing different things. You know, so you might have males that for a time of the year are out foraging. You might have males that are then mate searching later in the summer. You might have gravid females that are just staying in one place um, staying warm day and night to, to produce the babies. So snakes, uh, you know, again, I like to say snakes are animals too, and they have a very interesting biology, just like a bird would, you know, we know a bird nests here and then it migrates there and it winters there and does this, that, and the other thing, snakes are the same way. And so snakes certainly can be out in the open grassland prairie, whether they're out moving, they're migrating, they're looking for mates, they're looking for a foraging ground. Um, but I would say these prairie dog colonies, um, where I think that's partially true, the, the question you asked or the statement, uh, is that this could be one of those features that concentrates prairie rattlesnakes. We know that prairie rattlesnakes, um, you know, can be in and around prairie dog colonies. First of all, the you know, the, the burrow systems themselves provide cover. Um, there's, there's probably more food right in that area in the form of small mammals. Um, so I would say partially right in that I could see prairie dog colonies at certain times of the year being areas where you might have a higher concentration, but I would say partially false in that, uh, it doesn't mean you're not going to see prairie rattlesnakes in other places. Yeah, absolutely. So this last one, this really doesn't have anything to do with hunting or bird dogs in general other than just maybe around the house. You know, the old belief or, or I have no idea if there's anything to it. The people that try and keep snakes from their yard or their house and scattering the, the cotton balls or whatever around the property. Is there any proof to that or accuracy to that at all because I, I remember growing up and my grandmother was one of she was terrified of snakes and every spring and summer she'd go out and and scatter them around the fence lines and stuff like that any thoughts oh. to that whatsoever she's putting out moth uh, Mo yeah mothballs moth yeah. yeah yeah i think i said cotton balls but mothballs yeah. <laughs> well i have not ever found a snake deterrent that works. You can buy commercial snake deterrents. I've not tried them in a scientific way. I've talked to a lot of people about them, read some of the research on them, but in general, a lot of those don't work. I would say, I do think that mothballs work somewhat on rodents 
which uh, which would be the food for snakes. Yeah. And um, so there could be an indirect effect there. But what I say to people, because we do that here uh, for timber rattlesnakes, we go out to people's houses and we look at their properties and kind of give them advice. The biggest thing you can do is to um, land, if you're going to live in snake country um, and you you need to landscape accordingly. If you... For example, at the back of your yard, if you you have a swamp in the backyard, a big wild swamp wooded area, and you put a huge brush pile right on that back edge, like, you know, and then you see a canebrake rattlesnake there every couple of days, you know, I'd be like, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, up here in the mountains, for example, I got a call, I came to a woman's house and she said, I'm seeing snakes everywhere. And I get calls like that all the time. So I'm like, yeah, she probably has one garter snake just on the garden. So anyways, I show up at this house, pretty remote, out in the national forest. We come around the back of the house. She's taking me to the spot. There's a, a timber rattlesnake there that goes under her house. I was like, oh, she's right. And then, and then she brings me in the house, and we come up to her front door, and there's a big rock, like stoop. And there is a, a male and a female rattlesnake on top of that like her steps breeding and there's another male coming down the driveway towards it. And I can see eight copperheads right there. Dad um, gum. And, and, <laughs> and, there, and there ended up being, uh, I, I caught the three rattlesnakes that I mentioned. And I think we ended up catching like 11 copperheads all right around that stoop. And it's because she built what she did when she built these rock steps, the, the, the structure of them and the spacing, she left the perfect place for snakes to shed and snakes to give birth. And so, um, you know, we, we just fix that problem by changing the structure of that rock and she doesn't have that problem anymore. I mean, she might see one rattlesnake a year going through the yard somewhere, but it's not, they're like attracted to her house. So the main thing you can do if you live in snake country is, is really be conscious about your landscape around your house. And is it attracting snakes? And I would, um, you know, not do things that attract snakes. Or if you're going to, if you need certain features uh, on your property, they're going to do that. You might have them in a certain place away from the house, away from your kennels, wherever that might be. So, um, so there are ways to lower the probabilities of, you know, a human or a dog getting a bite just by thinking about the landscape in terms of deterrence. Again, I don't know of any snake deterrence like commercially that, that work, um, you know, the mothball idea, if anything, if it does have some effect on rodents that could have an indirect effect on snakes that might be coming to your property to, you know, forage, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, this is one of those topics. I mean, obviously, I think that we've covered a lot of ground on this one, and it's it's one of those subjects that we could honestly talk for another few hours and, and really just be scratching the surface. But, mm -hmm. you know, as we, as we wind this down, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your podcast, a little bit about the Orient Society and what you guys have going on there, because I know that you guys have a whole bunch of stuff going behind the season, scenes as, as well as there. And then... Uh, yeah, man, I've really enjoyed this conversation and got kind of getting to explore something a little bit, a little bit outside the bird dog world, but enough overlap to where there's enough interest and in, in intrigue and questions that I think should provide some value to listeners. Great. Yeah. So, um, first of all, snake talk 
uh, there's there's probably multiple episodes on there that could be of interest to people. There's multiple hunting related. Like I said, we've got the snake aversion training for dogs. We did an episode with a state biologist from Pennsylvania who actually talks about their hunting season. They have a, a regulated rattlesnake hunting season. Um, you know, we actually have a snake bite treatment in dogs episode that will be coming out with one of these vets that I referenced that'll be coming out in about a month. Um, but the podcast is called snake talk. Um, and you can find it anywhere you digest your podcast, you know, Spotify, Apple, um, any of those places. You can also find it on, uh, the Orient society's website, which is at www. O-R-I-A-N-N-E dot O-R-G. You can also access all the episodes there. Um, with Orianne Society, you know, we're doing a lot of great work um, that really benefits a lot of species. It benefits us as hunters. Um, and we have we work in different parts of the country and we work internationally. But, but I'll give uh, the example to give you an idea of the types of things we do from down here in the Southeast. And we work in the longleaf pine ecosystem. Uh, you know, the, what people think of as, as those bobwhite quail woods. Um, and we do a lot of land acquisition. We've been working with the state and others. Um, any of you in South Georgia over the last 10 years, um, you've probably noticed that hundreds of thousands of acres of public land have been added into the system that you can now go out and hunt or fish or hike. Um, you know, we've been involved with a lot of that. Um, we do a lot of habitat management. Uh, we do, we have our own prescribed fire teams and we're, we're, burning the woods. We're planting native ground cover, planting longleaf pines, just a lot of habitat restoration work. Um, and then, you know, a lot of rare species inventory and monitoring and, um, you know, and, and research. So, um, you know, species like indigo snakes, uh, Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, gopher tortoises, um, in that region. Yeah. We even, we monitor quail. We have our own preserve system. Um, we have something down there called the longleaf stewardship center, which is a base of operations for all this restoration work. We also train uh, people there to, to manage their own properties and, and we bring in volunteers to help. Um, but we do Bob white quail monitoring right on our own, own yeah. properties as well. So it's, it's really diverse. Um, and the last thing I'd say, uh, I mentioned it in the beginning, but I am on the North American board for <clears throat> backcountry hunters and anglers. And I uh, way back now founded the Georgia chapter and I'm a huge proponent of public lands um, and maintaining our public lands and stewarding our public lands. And uh, yeah, so I would just encourage everybody to get out there and, uh, you know, enjoy the public lands, support the conservation of your public lands. And, and one way you can do that is by checking out backcountry hunters and anglers. Fantastic. Well, Chris, I enjoyed it. I, I, I love nerding out on uh, different topics such as this, and we'll have to link up at some point in person, maybe go chase some of the, the unicorn grouse that we have down here in the Southern Apps and, and maybe uh, learn a little bit more about the rattlesnake and kind of crossover habitat between both birds and, and reptiles. But I really enjoyed this. Listeners, stay tuned for the outro, and we'll let Chris go here. And uh, again, appreciate it, Chris. Great. I'll take you up on that, Nick. I took the dogs for a walk yesterday. We moved four groups of grouse, so um, well, we had a good day. <laughs> then then you'll, de you'll definitely be hearing from me then. If you're, moving, if you're moving that many unicorns right now, you'll definitely be hearing from me. But yeah, that's, that's some good news. I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Yep. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir.
All right, everybody, hope you enjoyed kind of stepping out of uh, the typical bird dog or gun dog talk for just a little bit to talk about uh, a creature or concern that a lot of us share within the community and snakes. This episode was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Uh, you, you might be asking, you know, why I I went off and did an episode such as this, just covering everything that there is to do about snakes that you kind of plugged in to learn about gun dogs, and then you get an episode on snakes. Hopefully you listened to it, though, because I think that we, we did a pretty good job of addressing that throughout the episode. But ultimately, you know, there's with snakes and there's a couple other topics or concerns within uh, the the upland community that people are concerned about with hunting in and around uh, with their dogs. And snakes is a common thing to where, you know, obviously it's seasonal depending on where you live, what type of snakes you come across. It is a concern that if you're not familiar with it or you have at least some kind of knowledge or education on snakes, it can be even more intimidating, especially when you start listening to certain people throw out maybe misconceptions or even myths or wives' tales or what, whatever you want to call it. Um, the fact of the matter is, is if you're going to go hunt, if you're going to take your dogs, especially in early season, depending on where you go, the snakes are out there. It's just part of the equation. You know, I, I'm not going to let something like snakes keep me from going and hunting with my dog. It's just, you know, be aware of it. It, it. it is out there. It is a concern. Be cognizant of it. Carry uh, what you need to carry in the field with you. Know a little bit more about it. If you do want more information on how to handle maybe a snake bite on that uh, happened to bite your dog, then go check out episode 83 of Snake Talk. It's uh, Chris's podcast, and it's uh, called Snake Bite and Dogs with Dr. Cher. They actually go through a lot of uh, more relevant details on how to actually handle snake bites and, and really just to educate yourself so that if you do find yourself having to go to the vet and deal deal with this issue, you can better advocate for your dog and the situation as a whole. So there's some valuable information in there, especially there's a story at the end uh, that, that the vet is talking about in terms of reinvenimation, especially after they've already be, been treated for anti-venom. And uh, I won't go too much into that because I'll do a disservice, but go check that out if you're interested. But you know, that there's just so many misconceptions about snakes, and, and it's something that I've always kind of had a fascination or at least an appreciation for over the years. And uh, so I thought it was uh, it was time for an episode to kind of talk about it and bring some of the uh, knowledge or education from the actual snake field into the bird dog world to where maybe we if we have a better understanding of actual snakes then maybe that'll alleviate some of your concern or uh, worry so to speak but this was this was kind of supposed to be the kickoff to another series idea that I had that I had uh, I was going to kind of go through a, a number of hazards or, or cautions if you will in, in the bird dog world and uh, the the three or four other episodes that I had in in uh, in, in the works just didn't really pan out. So that might be a an idea that I circle back to in the future. But as of right now, I just thought that uh, this was this was a good topic to tackle, something a little bit outside of the, the normal uh, bird dog podcast that you might hear on this show as well as others. So with all that being said, uh, housekeeping is going to be real short this week. 
Patreon. We do a monthly giveaway uh, for Onyx memberships. This past month, we also had a, an, a custom leatherwork design offered from uh, Carson Fillin of Fillin the Outdoors Custom Leatherworks. He does a lot of great things. Uh, you know, he does he, he does a whole bunch. If you can pretty much think of what you want. That, that has to do with leather, he can make it for you from prong collars to Jaeger leads to holsters for your e-collar to water bottle holders to go on your vest. Like it, he, he does a lot of cool stuff and custom designs, so check them out. But if you want to get in on next month, he's going to repeat and do another giveaway for us for a Patreon. Uh, please go sign up. It's patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself. And last month's winner for June, uh, Matt Morgan won the, the custom leather work from Carson and then Corey Dewar won the Onyx Elite membership so appreciate uh, Matt and Corey's support via Patreon and if you guys have found any value or knowledge or or you just appreciate the podcast you find it entertaining you check in week in week out please consider joining Patreon it does go a long way and I can't do the show without their support so with all that being said again I hope you enjoyed this episode hit subscribe so you can hit next week's episode for sure and I appreciate it as always for you just hitting download and play. It means the world to me and uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and again year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.